COVID test makers struggle to cope as infected workers, delayed government authorizations for new tests, and the pressure of panic buying have left companies like North Chicago's Abbott Labs scrambling and creating delays for consumer test results. And I'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, about two suburban activists who found racist language in their property deeds. So she goes into the covenants for the homeowners association that governs the property she's on, She's looking for the rule on fences and she finds out, oh, here's this language I had no idea was in there that says no selling, no renting to blacks, Jews, Japanese, Chinese. We'll talk about how they had it removed and how others can do the same. And she talks to people who are in the homeowners association and and they all say, well, you know, it's been there forever. It's not enforced. We just sort of ignore it. I'm Amy Guth and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Tuesday, January 11th. When it comes to a professional like your doctor or lawyer, you want someone who knows you well. Wintrust believes you should have the same relationship with your banker, someone you can call directly and know they'll understand your concerns. Thousands of local business owners called their Wintrust banker when they needed Paycheck Protection Program loans. They called, Wintrust answered, and helped more than 11,000 local businesses secure funding. Learn more at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, here to talk about racist language that was in property deeds and how people are trying to get that eradicated. You know, it, it really is fascinating to think that while we've had fair housing laws for half a century, there was never any requirement that those old restrictions against selling to blacks and Jews weren't crossed out on every deed. Obviously, that would have been an enormous piece of work because all of our deeds were on paper at that time and there were millions around the country. So a lot of that just sort of remained It was unenforceable. It was illegal. But still, if you pulled up the deed to your home, you might read that there was this language still in there. So as of January 1st, there's a new law in Illinois that makes it possible to get that removed from your deed or really blacked out in your deed very quickly at your county recorder of deeds office. What they'll do is they'll actually go to your deed and cross out, black out the language so that it is no longer visible and not part of the official deed governing what can be done with your property. It's really interesting where this started. There are two women who live outside Mundelein, an unincorporated Mundelein, who separately sort of discovered that their deeds from 1929 had language that said, that their property could not be sold or rented to Blacks, Jews, Japanese, or Chinese people, couldn't be rented to them either, couldn't be transferred or passed down to them, and couldn't be occupied by any of those types of people unless they were servants. Wow. That's 1929. That's actually before either of these women's houses were built. It's just the, the very large subdivision that was platted in about 1929. Not uncommon to put that in in a deed at that time. Then in 1968, fair housing laws and uh, and other regulations make all of that illegal, unenforceable, and then it just disappears into the fog, in part because we don't really see our paper deed as much anymore. Now in the 21st century, we primarily see an online version, 
which may not be the entire document, though you do actually have access and get a copy of the document when you buy or sell your home. So one of these women was looking to put up a fence because she has a dog. Her house is on the shore of Diamond Lake, and she was afraid that people walking by might be disturbed by her dog. So she goes into the covenants for the homeowners association that governs the property she's on. She's looking for the rule on fences, and she finds out, oh, here's this language I had no idea was in there that says no selling, no renting to Blacks, Jews, Japanese, Chinese. Separately, another woman who lives nearby found it because she joined the board of the homeowners association and everybody who buys into the neighborhood gets a copy of these restrictions or the whole deed, which includes the restrictions. And she's looking through it and she realizes, wait a minute, what we're disseminating to people has this old language in it. And she talks to people who are in the homeowners association and and they all say, well, you know, it's been there forever. It's not enforced. We just sort of ignore it. And she's not the type, nor is the first woman, the type to ignore it. So they sort of get together and they, they start talking about what can we do? We want to root out the racism that is codified in the documents of our homes. They talk about this for a couple of years. And then in 2020, they wrote to Governor Pritzker. They wrote to their state senator and state representative, both of whom took that up right away and got a law passed in Springfield in July of 2021 that makes it easier for you to go to your recorder. You go to your recorder, you say, here's where this restriction is. You still have to find it in your own deed. You say, here's where it is. I want it eliminated. The county recorder can charge you no more than $10 and then just blacks it out. So this document, in their case from 1929, now has been edited to completely remove what they and their legislators referred to as relics of a racist era. Once again, totally unenforceable because the law prohibits enforcing such discrimination today, but it's there. So is that just a symbolic victory? And that's one of the things I talked with them about. And and they said, you know, it's not a symbolic victory. It's really crossing that right out and making it clear, this is not what we believe anymore. And I did speak to the Lake County Treasurer, um, Holly Kim, is Korean. She also lives in a house that had those covenants in that same neighborhood. So she's Korean. And what she said to me is, so I'm not specifically excluded because it excludes Chinese and Japanese residents, but my children are half Chinese. And she said that was really a gut punch. Sure. Those are the words she used, a gut punch to read that. The first two women I was talking about are both white and they are not members of any of those groups that were excluded. But one of them, Nicole Sullivan, said to me, you know, but that's that's just letting that trauma lie there. Can you imagine, she said, if I sold my house to somebody who's in one of those and I'm passing that trauma along to them and then they open the document and realize, oh, I'm actually not welcome in in this neighborhood where I just bought a home. So I thought it was very it was very self-aware of her, of both of them to root this stuff out, even though it doesn't apply to either of them. How did the women connect? How did they find each other? Their neighbors. They would say they live in two different neighborhoods just because it's a it's the way the the landscape is named, but they they live a very short distance from each other in this unincorporated part of Mundelein, right on the shores of Diamond Lake, and they knew each other and th- they had both been looking at this issue for years and are good friends and so it was in it was um in the summer of 2020 
when one of them heard a black pastor say to white adults, basically, what can you do? What do you think you can do at home to start combating systemic racism? And she realized, oh, we've been talking about this language in our deeds for so long. Let's do that. And they did. And it turned into a state law. And was there any like dismissal of this as they were approaching people about it? Was anybody like, oh, it's not enforceable. Don't even worry about it. Or were were people pretty much taking up their cause pretty readily? Well, it's interesting. Catherine Shannon, who is the second woman, the woman who was uh, on her homeowners association board, she said that, you know, for years she was saying to others on the on the HOA, look, we're we have offensive language in these documents. And they would say, oh, you know, it's been there for a long time. It's written in stone. Let's just ignore it. That was the most common negative response she got for years was just, ah, you know, what can you do about it? Which is sort of a passive acceptance of this historical problem. So no, I don't know of people who said, we need to keep that language in the documents, but I, but it does appear that a lot of people just said, nah, what do you do? Well, just leave it there. Yeah. But, but that passive acceptance is still acceptance. I mean, Absolutely. I mean, they're exactly right that, that striking it out of the language or striking it out of the deed is a step is saying we absolutely don't agree with this and we want it taken out of our deed. I agree. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is that essentially it's sort of, it's one of the things you yourself can do, mm-hmm. right? You know, how can I combat racism? Well, if I'm a homeowner in Illinois, here's one simple thing I can do. It's not going to cost me more than $10. If my deed has this language in it, I can have it written out and that's a step that I can take. And then, and you know, you multiply that. If each one of us who owns a home looks into our deed, checks whether it needs to be fixed, one of the legislators referred to it as empowering homeowners. And I think it does. Hey, there is actually something I can do. And one of the women, Nicole Sullivan, both of them are mothers of four, just by coincidence. But Nicole said that one of the things she tries to teach her kids is always leave something better than the way you found it. And I think in this case, that's sort of what they're doing. So people before me owned this house and the the deed had that language and the people before me just said, oh, well, it's there. It's not like I'm not going to sell to a black, Chinese, Japanese, or Jewish person. I'm not going to use that language. So it's just going to be there. But what she is doing is making it impossible for anybody ever to do that and actively crossing it out. Nice lesson for your kids and leaving, uh, if not the house itself, the documents that are attached to that house better than you found them. Certainly. Do you know if if anybody in other states have, like, is anybody else doing this somewhere else? Yes. In Connecticut, there's a similar system. Minneapolis, Seattle, those are the ones I mentioned in the story. I know it's going on in other places. There's a vague number floating around in my head that we're the sixth state with a law, but I, I, I don't have confirmation of that. I do know that Connecticut, Seattle, Minneapolis, all have created mechanisms for doing the same thing. So essentially your deed would look like a redacted document. Yeah. It would just be like blacked up. Yeah. They actually use the term redacted because it, yeah, it it looks like um, something you'd get from the government that has uh, some lines crossed out in black. I'm so glad you covered this story. It's such an important one. You know, it's also, thank you. um, But all I did was report the story. The people who got this ball rolling, you know, it's one of those things where, A hundred people could have done it before they did, but these were the two who were persistent enough, for whom it mattered enough. Now, one of the things we ought to talk about is this is not in everybody's deed. The first thing you need to do if, if this interests you is read the deed to your house, 
read the covenants if you're in a homeowners association and see if there is language. There are a lot of places where there isn't language, either because it was never there, which would be great, or because somebody already rewrote the deed at some point in the past, or it's a subdivision that was developed so long after fair housing laws, like you know, on a cornfield in the Western suburbs, that this never applied. But you read your deed and you find out if that language is there. And then you go to your county recorder of deeds and say, look what I found. I want to get rid of this. And 10 bucks later, you can get rid of it. Yeah, I'd be very interested. I hope that somebody counts how many do this. These two women were the first in Lake County and, and it was sort of a somewhat ceremonial. They, I mean, they actually did it, but there were county officials there and legislators because these are the two who got the ball rolling. But I hope that the different county recorders are counting. And let's say a year from now, I'm able to report X number of people have done it. Yeah, wouldn't that be great? It's kind of that thing where, where like a motto that I try to live by is if you catch yourself saying, oh, someone should do something about this, then that someone should be you. They took matters into their own hands and they took care of it. Yeah, they did. And, you know, I mean, honestly, I can't say enough that I think what they did is just really smart. Because it does, it really does make it possible for individual people to root out that really awful little relic. I mean, several people said to me, imagine you buy your house, you move in, you're just flipping through the documents on that first night and you see, oh man, this wasn't supposed to be sold to me because I'm Black, Jewish, Chinese, Japanese. And it's just really nice that they removed any possibility of that happening to some future buyer, five, 10, a hundred years from now. Yeah. I mean, imagine sitting there going, wow, my, my grandparents couldn't have bought this house. Right. Like that's a lot. And it's a, it's a way, it's a simple way, simple and low cost way that you can make a stand for something that you believe in. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I agree completely. And well, and the experience of Holly Kim of the, of the Lake County treasurer where she realizes, oh yeah, I, I could buy this house, but my kids would technically not be allowed to live here because they're half Chinese. Yeah. It does remind you, I mean, that was, that was really a horrible era. I mean, there were there were good things going on in the United States in the early part of the 20th century. Racism was the, the extremely dark shadow on all of that. Yeah, certainly. Uh, more stories like this always, you know, helping helping turn that tide a bit. So thanks so much, Dennis. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, PR giant Edelman pledges to drop clients that don't meet new social and climate standards. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Thanks for listening to Crane's Daily Gist. Remember, we provide a daily news brief that drops right in your inbox. It's our newsletter called The Crane's Morning 10. They're the 10 stories that will fuel a smarter workday. To subscribe, visit chicagobusiness.com slash morning 10. You're listening to Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. As the Omicron variant sends U.S. COVID case numbers to new records and drugstores and walk-in clinics struggle to stock test kits, suppliers have also been struggling with their own problems. Infected workers delayed government authorizations for new tests and the pressure of customers panic buying and hoarding. Bloomberg reports that Vault Health, a telehealth company that now sells tests, 
has found itself sending test samples across the country as sick lab workers who usually process their at-home PCR tests stay home. In New Jersey, one of the labs with which Vault regularly contracts has had more than 40% of its workforce out with COVID recently, according to the company's CEO who spoke with Bloomberg. Vault said it had to route tests to other areas where there are fewer COVID cases. And that combined with the volume of tests has led to a delay in processing, with test results often taking longer. Bloomberg also reports that suppliers have been caught off guard by uncertain demand, starting with the Delta variant wave last summer, followed by the speed of the Omicron variant. Some either scaled back or stopped production of COVID tests altogether as the virus initially waned and when it was believed that vaccinated people no longer needed to test. One of the leading test makers, Abbott Labs of North Chicago, closed one of its factories, scaled back production at another, and destroyed test card components that the company decided were likely to expire before they would ever be needed. Other small companies decided to wind down their COVID testing businesses altogether, pulling out of contracts to return to the production focuses they had pre-pandemic. But even companies that did plan for an Omicron-like event have been caught short, calling for some radical and costly measures to meet demand. In Trivio, maker of the popular on-go at-home rapid test, said that it decided not to slow down production, anticipating another wave. But supply chain issues caused by COVID have recently forced the company to utilize private jets to move its tests around the country. In Trivio, CEO Ron Gutman said, quote, when you have regular channels of transportation coming into constraints, you need to be very, very creative. He continued by saying, I don't fly private, but my tests do. Still other companies say that scaling up to meet demand is impossible when the goalpost keeps moving as case numbers continue to rise. As of that reporting, the U.S. was reporting more than 500,000 cases a day on average, a more than 200 percent uptick from just two weeks prior. And some supplies that might have been available in the U.S. are winding up in Europe where more than 45 rapid antigen tests have been approved. In the U.S., so far only about a dozen have gotten a green light. And speaking of Abbott Laboratories, in a keynote address at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas last week, the company revealed it was developing a new category of bio-wearables for consumers to use to track levels of things like glucose, ketones, and lactate in their bodies. Abbott said in a statement that the consumer product, Lingo, which is designed for athletic performance, exercise, and nutrition, was created from Abbott's diabetes maintenance technology pioneered by the company in 2014. In 2020, Abbott used the technology to produce a type of wearable for athletes, which it launched in Europe. Abbott chairman and CEO Robert B. Ford said in his speech, quote, this will be like having a window into your body. It's science that you will be able to access any time so you can understand what your body is telling you and what it needs. He continued by saying, our vision is that lingo will go far beyond today's wearables for consumers to help you proactively manage your health, nutrition, and athletic performance. Abbott said that lingo would first be developed to measure glucose, but would add other biomarkers to provide insights on dieting, weight loss, and athletic performance. The company's statement also said the system could eventually also track blood alcohol levels. Blackstone is adding to its bets on sustainability and climate change with a $3 billion investment in clean energy and infrastructure focused in Venergy. Blackstone's infrastructure group will take a minority stake in the Chicago-based renewable energy developer with Invenergy and a Canadian pension fund, CDPQ, remaining majority owners. Blackstone has committed almost $13 billion to investments that aim to support a transition to cleaner energy since 2019. It also announced a plan in 2020 to cut carbon emissions by 
by 15% across new investments, where the firm is in control over energy use within the first three years of ownership. Invenergy is one of the largest independent renewable developers in the U.S. The company focuses on partnerships with utilities, financial institutions, and commercial and industrial customers. According to the company, its projects have offset approximately 167 million tons of carbon dioxide, and the company is currently building the largest wind and solar projects within the U.S. Crane's sister publication AdAge reports that Chicago-based PR giant Edelman said it will drop clients that don't adhere to its new Environmental, Social, and Governance, or ESG, guidelines. That follows what was described as a 60-day review of over 330 clients conducted in response to pressure from climate activists. Results of the assessment were shared through a blog post Friday by CEO Richard Edelman and is part of an ongoing sustainability strategy called Edelman Impact, which was established a week after the group Clean Creatives petitioned the firm to drop its oil and gas clients, particularly ExxonMobil and Shell. The petition was circulated during the UN Global Summit in November and signed by more than 100 notable activists, academics, authors, and actors, among others. Edelman established six principles for the business and its clients to follow and said the guiding principles are to work with those committed to accelerating action to net zero and are in compliance with the Paris Accords. Those who put science and facts first advance best practices and standards for climate communications, ensure inclusivity, focus on a just transition, and, quote, hold ourselves accountable. But the agency's efforts were met with skepticism by clean creatives, though they did say they applaud this change, and if done right, it can inspire other networks or agencies to look at standards and guidelines as well. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. You can follow all of these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to find your on-demand audio. And remember to rate and review Crane's Daily Gist because that's the best way for others to discover these episodes. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.